Welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Awaken. I'm alive. I made it back. Yep, yep. Negative COVID test, so here we are. Here we are. Um, If we've not met, my name is Micah. I'm one of the pastors here at Awaken, and uh, recently returned from a few things, uh, a few places. I'll I'll share a little bit more in a bit. But today is Sacred Sunday. Uh, If you are not aware, there are bulletins in the back. I've got some up here in the front. If you want to follow along and sing along, you'll need one of those, so make sure you grab one. Set them down here. Um, And I'd like to begin with a call to worship. Um, Obviously, uh, with, well, there's just a lot going on in our world, yeah? And yet we gather every Sunday. um, We come to this place and in some ways uh, bank on liturgy, this thing that is repeated week after week to help shape and form the kind of people that we're becoming and that we want to be in the world. Um, so I don't know why you're here this morning. Um, I have a sneaky suspicion that I know a few of the reasons, but uh, however you arrive here this morning, uh, welcome to you. And an invitation to, uh, to really have your eyes open and your ears open, your hearts open to what the Spirit might do and say today. Um, so I want to begin with this prayer. Uh, this is a prayer from uh, an author named Walter Brueggemann who uh, just has so many good things, but this is called Like an Endless Falling. So um, I want to invite you to receive this. So maybe if you would just uh, close your eyes, take a couple of deep breaths, and hear these words. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. We are no strangers to the falling apart. We perpetrate against the center of our lives, and on some days it feels like an endless falling, like a deep threat, like a rising water, like ruthless wind. But you, you in the midst, you back in play, you rebuking and silencing and ordering, you creating restfulness in the very eye of the storm, You, be our center. Cause us not to lie about the danger. Cause us not to resist your good order. Be our God. Be the God you promised. And we will be among those surely peaceable in your order. We pray in the name of the one through whom all things hold together. And the church said together, amen. Amen. Would you stand and let's sing together? All righty. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to make your way back to your seats, that'd be great. Uh, Again, my name is Micah, if you came in a little late. uh, One of the pastors here at Awaken, and so good to see you all. Um, I've been been away for a few weeks, so I'm really glad to be back. Um, I have like a whole page full of... um, like caveats and announcements and things that I want to talk about before we even get to the sermon. So bear with me just for a moment. Um, if you're new, welcome to you. We'd love to know that you were here. In the seat pockets in front of you uh, or in the pews there, there are cards. There are also QR codes you can scan. That'll take you to a place where you can fill out uh, a little card that says you're new. Let's lets us know that you were here. 
And if you uh, fill that out, somebody from our team will reach out and invite you to a beverage of your choice. Uh, if you fill one of those out or you have tithes or offerings, those can go in the black boxes at each of the exits. By the way, um, in May and June, just a little report. If you were around for the annual meeting, you know, we proposed a budget that was a little bit of a stretch. Um, the, the May and June averaged like around $47,000 in tithes and offerings. If that just keeps going for the whole year, like there's no deficit at Awaken in our budget. So just an FYI, it's in the room. You guys are doing great, so thank you. Um, that's a huge part of our life is, is uh, your support of what's going on here. So thank you, thank you, thank you. A um, couple of announcements uh, that are happening. We want to let you know if Camp Create is starting tomorrow, July 11th. There's three different dates, July 11th, July 20th, and August 16th. Um, Mandy's put together a great program of things for our kids. So if you're interested in that, you can still sign up. This week on the 11th, we've got story time with Steph Abrahamson, who I saw over here earlier. Um, paint, paint pouring with Jenny Klukin. And then further on down the line, there's a fly fishing trip with yours truly and some of the fellas here at Awaken on the 20th. Uh, we've got some uh, needle crafting, I think, with Michaela. There's a, a, there's a couple others I'm forgetting. So if, that, if you're leading that, I'm sorry. It's not because I don't like you or I don't think it's important. But all of it's on the website. You can find it out there. Um, August the 7th, first Sundays of the summer, we're uh, in the park. We're going to be at Raspberry Island on the 7th, so that's a change from Highland Park. That's the island right downtown um, St. Paul. We're doing baptisms that day, so if you're interested in being baptized, if you've never been baptized, um, we'd love to do that. We've got a family, uh, some youngsters who are interested, so hopefully that'll be happening, but if you are, please let me know, Micah at AwakenWest7th.com, and we can make arrangements for that. And then um, finally, we have a couple of openings uh, we're hiring. So uh, many of you know the operations and admin role uh, that we're hiring for. If you know anybody uh, or you can pass that on, the job description is online. And then if you didn't get the Awaken Weekly this, this week, this is a perfect example of why you should always read your Awaken Weekly. Um, our dear friend Mandy Taylor, uh, Kids Community Director, uh, has made the, the decision to move on from that role. Um, not from our church, but just uh, passing the baton to somebody, whoever's next. So um, we're still sort of somewhat grief-stricken, grief um, but understandably, you know, these things happen in the life of a church. So um, be in prayer for those things. Lots of change at Awaken. Um, but if you know people that would, might be interested, please pass that on and let us know. Sound good? One other thing, um, some of you know Judy Howard-Peterson. Judy's spoken here before on Easter a couple times. Dear friend of Awaken and of mine. Um, she has a she called me last night and said, Micah, would you ever consider? And I'm like, that's right up Awakens Alley. So here it is. Today, there's a woman named Titi, um, uh, Judy's dear friend. She is, uh, has a, a, a booth uh, at a, like a craft fair in Minneapolis, right between um, 24th and 27th on Franklin. So if you're a Minneapolis person, you're headed that way, going home. Um, this is a huge like risk for Titi and like a, a brand new endeavor. And so if you're out and about this afternoon and wouldn't mind, like, stopping by that booth and um, she's making, like, a, uh, I guess they're coffee mugs and tumblers and things that are quite lovely, um, and she's out there, and it would just be a really cool thing if a whole bunch of awakened people, like, on the down low just wandered through there and bought a bunch of mugs, right? So uh, I said to Judy, yeah, that's, that's right up our alley. So... Um, isn't able to do Venmo for lots of different reasons, so if you have cash, you're going to need it. So TT's Treasures, Franklin Avenue this afternoon, all right? That's all I have related to that. Now, 
I'm back from a few trips, uh, well, one trip in particular, Ireland and the annual meeting. So a little report on, on that. Um, some of you know, some of you don't. My wife and I were accepted to this peacemaking and reconciliation cohort. So for the last six months, we've been studying with a group of people from the U.S. and the U.K., and it culminated in Northern Ireland where we studied, uh, you know, sort of at ground zero in a conflict zone. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? And what does it mean to be a person who uh, is a reconciling leader? Um, so much to say about that experience and um, things that, that I learned, we learned. One, I'll give my, my biggest takeaway. Uh, and, it, and it has to do with this. Like, whenever we think about peacemaking in moments in, in like, history where the Good Friday Peace Agreement of 1998 in Northern Ireland is signed or some major, you know, something in apartheid South Africa happens, the Truth and Reconciliation Project, these moments where something big happens on the stage for peace, um, I'm, I'm becoming more and more convinced of the fact that, like, that's 1% of the moments and the story of peacemaking in the world. We, we, we long for those moments, and we want to see them, and we celebrate them, and we, we remember them, we memorialize them. But, friends, peacemaking is everyday, ordinary people seeing their neighbors as humans. It's you seeing your neighbor, who is not your enemy or an animal, as a human, an image-bearing creature of God. That's where peacemaking actually happens, day in and day out. When you and I, not the people in the, not on the TV screens or the politicians or the people who get paid for it, you and me, and any, any lasting peace that we see happen in the world that shows up as the peace agreement in 1998 and the troubles in Northern Ireland is like hundreds and thousands of little stories of a priest who decided to go across the wall and introduce himself to a Presbyterian pastor, a Catholic priest, right? It's those moments. So uh, I, I want to, like, for me, it's a little, um, it's not very sexy. It's not very, like, um, you know, it's not a silver bullet. It's not, like, this big moment of aha, but it's a reminder that it's, like, everyday stuff, which leads to the annual meeting and our work of peacemaking, Yeah? Uh, some of you know the, the annual meeting of the Covenant just happened, and um, I was at a little hearing, a small little gathering of my colleagues where my ordination was recommended for removal. And if you did not know or did not receive the report, the, the votes needed to pass that recommendation on to the annual meeting of the church did not pass. <laughs> How about that? Um, 60% of my colleagues voted that I should have my ordination removed. That's not insignificant. But 40% of my colleagues said, no, that's actually not, this is not the path forward for us in the covenant. And so I want to bring back to you a report that says, like, I and our church have chosen to walk this path out in a particular way that's rooted in, in humility and generosity and compassion, respect and dignity, uh, and an attempt as far as we can uh, have any say in it, to be winsome. And I just want you to know that, like, it's winning the day. That your example is being talked about among my colleagues and other churches in the covenant. Like, who you are actually as a church is being seen. And so for me, like, a moment of pride as a pastor in this community, so proud of you all. So proud of our leaders, so proud of our staff, and you as a community. Many of you wrote letters with respect, but with like strong backbones and soft hearts. 
Like, that's the posture, and that's what we're going to keep doing going forward. Um, I have felt incredibly supported and loved and cared for by you all as I walked this out personally and what it meant for me in my calling. So I want to just report back to you, like, um, I'm really excited. People ask, like, what now? Well, now I get to meet with the Board of Ordered Ministry again and say, like, hey, the things that that I've been talking about and asking for that you all said no to, like, We've got chips to play, and so now we're going to leverage those chips for the sake of love, for the sake of generosity, and for the sake of as many seats at the table as we possibly can, right? Because that's the way of Jesus. So um, as, as much as you participate in that, like, well done, way to go, uh, and, and as my part in it going forward, like, steadfast, resolute, feet on the ground, let's do this. So, thank you for your support in it and your part in it. Um, it was beautiful. It was quite flabbergasting. I, I, I didn't expect it. I expected to come back with a very different report. Um, so, who knows? Who knows what might be afoot among us in our, in our denomination. Um, so, now begins the work of peacemaking for you and me, right, as, as uh, covenanters. So, that is that. On to, um, well, what I spend most of my time doing, which is a sermon. Um, are you guys ready? We are beginning a new series this morning called Lost in Translation. It's new for this summer, but it's old for us as a church. And it is, uh, we do Lost in Translation in the summer, and we've been doing it for a long time, because for many of us, the Bible is a weird book. Amen? Anybody in agreement on that one? It's a weird book at times, and there are weird passages in it. There are passages that are hard to understand. There are passages in it that are, quite frankly, bothersome and, and, um, well, offensive, uh, it, 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 people say, like, it's just the plain reading of the text, to which I want to say, um, yeah, that's fine, but everybody has a plain reading of the text, and that's the problem, because you interpret it one way, and somebody else might interpret it another way, and how you read the Bible matters, because it informs how you show up in the world. So Lost in Translation is uh, it's a series that we do because it matters what we believe about the Bible. So we're going to spend the, the, the rest of summer asking, like, what is this thing? And how do we hold it? How do we approach it? How do we interpret it? How do we read it well? What are the honest questions? What are the honest objections that people have? And what are the hard passages that we find in it? And we're just going to tackle them head on and see what the Spirit of the Lord does in our midst. Um, And and quite frankly, this this is probably my most favorite thing to do in my job. I love this. When people um, have, you know, come in this room and they have like a particular version of the Bible and then we do something and we walk through and then there's this moment that I oft, sometimes get, these are little gifts, where like I can see it happening in your eyes and like a little light bulb goes on or a, an aha moment happens and I'm just like, yes, that's the good stuff. So uh, I'm, I, hope, I hope you're as excited about this as I am. Um, and today we're starting with a passage that's a real doozy. Um, it, 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 in my honest opinion, one of the most misinterpreted passages with the gravest consequences. That's a big statement. So I hope to, I hope to uh, fill it out. If you have your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. I'll ask Al, wherever you are, is going to read our passage this morning. So if you're able, I want to invite you to stand Uh, for the reading of the word, and we do this because uh, a couple of different reasons. 
We want to ready ourselves, right? If you were an athlete growing up, this is a ready position. We want to hear what's being said. I want to honor and respect what's in this book because uh, our, our, our forebearers would say often, this is the altar where one meets the living God. This is a covenant phrase. The scriptures can be an altar where we encounter the living word. So, may it be true today, yeah? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Pray with me. God, this morning we turn our attention and our hearts to these words, uh, which have been preserved and have lasted thousands of years. Um, I pray that, as you often do, that your living presence would inhabit these words, that they would become three-dimensional, not just black and white words on a page, but that you would reveal something about your character and yourself to us today through them. That we would hear uh, the words of the, the word uh, of God, Jesus, speaking through these passages, through these words that Paul wrote to this little church in Thessaloniki thousands of years ago. So may it be true in our midst, I pray. In the strong name of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, the church said together, Amen. You may be seated. I've got a special guest this morning, actually two. Uh, Kirk Cameron and Nicholas Cage will be joining me. <laughs> oh, just kidding. For those of you that don't know, there was, a one, there was a movie made. Because why make only one when you can make two? A movie called Left Behind, starring Kirk Cameron. Yes. Uh, what, what was the show he was in? Um, Growing Pains. I was like, Family Ties? No, that's not it. That's Michael J. Fox. Um, Growing Pains, uh, a movie called Left Behind, which the center of the movie is this event in Scripture. The whole, whole movie is about that. And then, you know, that wasn't good enough, so we'll double down on it. We'll get a big star, Nick Cage, you know, Oscar-winning Nick Cage, and we'll do it again. And the center of the movie is this passage in Scripture. This is called The Rapture. Uh, known uh, on the streets as the moment when all the Christians are evacuated from the world and meet Jesus in the air and then go to heaven somewhere else while the rest of folks who aren't Christians are left behind to fend for themselves in the great tribulation of the book of Revelation. Some of you are laughing. This is not a laughing matter, you guys. Uh, this passage has been, in my opinion, misinterpreted gravely, and the misinterpretation of this passage has had serious consequences for real people living in the world. 
So what I want to do today is I want to, I'll do three things. I'll attempt to do three things. I want to tell you why I don't believe in a rapture, a moment where we're all evacu- those who are Christians are evacuated from the world, the, the earth. I want to talk about why I don't believe that's what Paul's saying here. Then I want to talk about what this kind of interpretation allows for, what it actually engenders in the world, which is very, very, very dangerous. And I want to try to convince you not to believe that. And then I want, to, I want to end with, what does the alternative to what this passage is often misinterpreted as saying, what is the alternative, I'm not going to give it away yet, what does it affirm? And why do I want to offer it to you and invite you to cling to it with everything you have? That's what I want to do today. It's a small and insignificant passage. Okay, So let's get busy. Why do I not believe in a rapture? Uh, when you read the Bible... There are a few tools that you can employ that are going to serve you well all the time. One of them is asking, who is it written to? So when you come to a book of the Bible, who's receiving this book? Who's receiving this letter? This is not like taken out of thin air. This was an actual person, Paul, writing to actual people, the church in Thessaloniki. It's an actual town on, on planet Earth. So asking who is it written to helps you understand what's the author trying to say. Uh, If you pick up the book of Matthew, who is it written to? Matthew is written to Jewish people. So a lot of the things Matthew does in the book, like starting with a gigantic liturgy or lineage of people who are in the Jewish tradition, it makes a little more sense as to why Matthew starts his gospel that way and Luke starts it a different way, because Luke's writing to Gentiles. So just asking a simple question of who's the audience is going to help us. So who's the audience here? It's Gentile, mostly some Jewish Christians, living in Roman-occupied Thessaloniki. This is the ancient world. Um, Paul's writing to a group of people who are being persecuted. These folks are literally suffering and dying for their faith. Chapter 1, he writes, You became imitators of us in the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of your severe suffering. Chapter 2, he says it again. For you, brothers and sisters, become imitators of God's church, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered for your own people the same thing the church has suffered. Our passage begins with, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, those who have died and suffered. Don't grieve like those who have no hope. So Paul's writing to a group of people who are suffering and even dying for their faith. Okay, He's trying to encourage them. He's reminding them that all is not lost, that death does not win, that darkness does not get the last word. And he's offering them the alternative, which is like uh, uh, made secure in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So he's trying to give them an alternative hope for those who have died in the name of Jesus or suffering because of Jesus. And he says, don't grieve like those who have no hope. And then he paints this picture. Imagine, if you would, trying to explain color to someone who can't see. Someone who's unable to see, uh, if you were going to try to explain what color is to them, you might say something like, well, red is, uh, it's like, it's warm. It's even hot sometimes. It's active. It's like a moving thing. And blue is, uh, it's cool. It's calming. Imagine, like, the feel of water if you would. Yellow, it's, uh, it's like daylight. Uh, it's like warmth. It's, it's uplifting, right? You would use things that they've experienced, 
in order to try to explain something that they've never seen before. Paul is doing the same thing. He's trying to explain to them something they've never seen or never experienced, and he does so by telling them three things that they would have known. Those three things are buried in this little passage, and they explain what Paul's doing. He's talking about Moses, Daniel, and Rome. So for the audience who would have heard Paul's message first, Moses, right? You guys remember this? Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston. Uh, that's what, what happens on, the ten, on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai is called a theophany. It's where God appears. And if you go back through the scriptures and you look at all the places that a theophany happens, you'll find a theme. And one of those themes, you'll find multiple themes, but one of them is loud noises, the sound of a trumpet, even like thunder and lightning and a cloud, right? Uh, Exodus chapter 19, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud over the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast. So what Paul's tapping into when he says in 1 Thessalonians, uh, the Lord himself will come down with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet call of God is not a literal thing. He's tapping into something they would have already known. Moses on Mount Sinai, a theophany, God appearing to humans. He's also tapping into Daniel chapter 7. The book of Daniel is about the vindication of the saints of God. Where the saints of God are lifted up in Daniel chapter 7, vindicated, made right. The suffering saints of God are vindicated in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, the metaphor is applied to the Son of Man in Daniel, which then gets attributed to Jesus. And Paul now applies it to Christians being persecuted in Thessaloniki. That there, there, there will be this lifting up, this raising up of those who have suffered on behalf of the Christ, Jesus, and they will be vindicated, made, made, to, made to be known as right. Moses, Daniel chapter 7, and Rome. They live in Rome. Rome occupied Thessaloniki. When a Roman emperor would have won a battle or uh, some, something big was happening and they would have come to the town that you lived in, the townspeople would have all come out of the town and they would have gone out to meet them somewhere off in the distance. They would have welcomed the king, the emperor. And it would have been this grand celebration. And then they would stay out there. Did, you know, wandering around in... No, they would bring the emperor back to the city where the emperor rules and reigns. So what Paul is tapping into is something that they would have seen happen before when the emperor would have come to town. The people would have gone out to meet them. And then what happens next, which Paul doesn't say because he assumes you know, is you welcome the, the emperor, the king, the ruling and reigning person back into the city where you all actually live as actual humans on an actual planet. <laughs> Not some disembodied future state. So you couple that, Moses, Daniel, uh, uh, Rome, with a few passages, just a select few passages in Scripture, Revelation 22, for example, or 21, where heaven, the rule and reign of God, comes down to earth and joins this earth, this creation, and it says, and now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. Not anything other than that which is a nearly direct quote of Exodus chapter 29 and Leviticus chapter 26. You couple this with 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul takes a whole chapter in the book of Corinthians to talk about 
Resurrection, not rapture. Resurrection, I'll just read a select portion of it, starting in verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Christ is the first fruit. He's an example. For since death came through a man, resurrection of the dead comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, and I love this, when he, Christ, hands over the kingdom to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until, uh, until he has put all the enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Sometimes we do an all play at Awaken. When you hear that, I'm curious, like, what about that passage in resurrection stands out to you as a hearer of that? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Is there anything that, like, stands out to you as it relates to resurrection and what Paul's saying there? Any thoughts or comments? This doesn't work if you don't play. Say it again. There are many types of deaths and resurrections. Yes. We're working with metaphor and not metaphor here. Good. What else? Hell is missing there. That's an interesting observation. Well done. What else? Death can be defeated. Yeah. A couple more. Who are the enemies of God? Great question. Anyone from the transepts? You guys are always quiet, but I, don't, I see you. Okay. I don't believe in a literal rapture <clears throat> because this is the only passage in the Bible that even intimates at this idea. So it kind of stands alone against a whole litany of, of comment and theology that opposes that idea. So if you're going to make a bet, this is a really bad one to make. The odds are not in your favor, right? It's like playing the Hunger Games. The odds are not in your favor here. Uh, it, the idea of a rapture is completely foreign to nearly everything else Paul has said. It's completely foreign to Jesus' experience as a human and then post, post the cross. Um, and if you dig a little, it's quite, well, it's not easy, but it can be, uh, it's, it's accessible to understand what Paul's doing in this passage. When you think about Moses and Daniel and Rome and the the images, the metaphors that he's pulling together to try to explain something that they've never seen before. So, uh, I would encourage you, if you've thought, well, that's kind of how it's going to end, um, I strongly disagree and would encourage you to think about it differently. Uh, and here's why. Uh, why is this belief dangerous? 
If you take notes, I'd like you to pick up your pen and follow along very closely right now. And um, if you don't, that's okay too. But this is really important. A rapture theology places a disembodied eternal spiritual state at the center of the Christian story. A rapture theology where everyone's evacuated somewhere else places at the very center of the Christian story a disembodied eternal state where, you don't, where you don't, your soul exists somewhere else, but your body no longer does. Disembodied. And not only does it do that, but it places that at the center of the Christian story. Like, that's the goal. That's the aim. That's what we want to get everybody to. So whatever cost is uh, uh, associated with getting people to that, it might be okay or worth it. When a disembodied eternal spiritual existence is the primary goal of Christianity, at least a couple of things follow closely on its heels. Number one, the exploitation of bodies that aren't your own. If, if a disembodied spiritual, eternal spiritual state is at the center of the story and the primary goal of Christians, then we can say things like, kill the Indian, save the man. And we can, I, I use we proverbially, kidnap native children, hold them against their will, convert them to Christianity because we're preserving their soul, which is the, the important thing. We can say things like, uh, or, or we can baptize black bodies into the Christian faith and then send them back into the cotton fields for slave labor. Because we've preserved the thing that matters, the soul, and if the body doesn't last, then it's really easy to exploit a body not your own if this is the center of the story. Is that, are you tracking with me here? And I think it's really important to understand, like, listen, if we're honest, Christianity is connected to some of the worst things that we've experienced in human history. You just, I think you have to be honest about that fact. When you begin to ask the question, how did we get there? How did that happen? How did people who follow Jesus allow for, endorse those kinds of things? And I would argue, this theology is not far behind. When a disembodied, spiritual, eternal state is at the center of the story, it's really easy to do that. Not only that, but it's really easy to exploit the world that we live in, the earth. Like, think about it. Why bother caring for the earth and the physical world when it's not going to last? First Peter, there's a verse about the, the earth burning up. So you take that and you couple it with this, and it's like, that's a fool's errand to care for the earth, to steward the world that we live in. Why bother, like, why deny yourself or your civilization some fruit of the land to ensure its future if you don't think it has a future? Right? Why, why limit yourself in your consumption of something if it's all going to be lost anyways? It's like you go to a party, there's leftover cake, just eat it. The party's over. Like, the cake's going to be, the, the cake's going to be thrown in the garbage. That's a trap. Like, 
You got, so you eat it. Why would you limit yourself in your consumption of something when you don't, when it, if, if you don't eat it, if you, we don't, it's, it's not going to last. So, friends, you may think I'm being ex- over-exaggeratory here, but I started this sermon by, telling, by offering the, the idea that, like, how we read the Bible and what we think it means really matters. And I would just su- submit this to you as a case study for a moment when it mattered. When this idea is at the center of our understanding of the Bible and the Christian story, there are a few things that are just right around the corner. And we could keep going. I I won't because I think I've proven my point. So I'm going to encourage you, if if maybe you thought, like, that's all I've ever heard, so that's got to be what it is, I want to offer you a a, a dramatically different perspective. uh, And I'm going to just implore you to think deeply about it and critique me if you think I'm off. Like, that's part of what we're trying to do here at Awaken. This is the beginning of the conversation, not the end, the pulpit, right? So I'm offering you something. I want you to think about it. And if you think I'm off my rocker, you can email me. We can have a drink and, and discuss that. That's not off the table. But this really, really does matter, um, especially as people who want to be, and I'm encouraging us to want to be peacemakers in the world, who bring together things that have been broken, who bring our reconciling presences in the world. So what we think Paul is saying here really matters then. So uh, if it's not a rapture, I don't believe that, and if this and it's quite dangerous, then how about something generative, Micah? Okay. Uh, if Paul's not suggesting rapture, that people are going to meet Jesus in the clouds to take us away to heaven forever, then what is the aim? What is the goal? What's the, like, telos of the Christian story in the Bible? And simply, I would say to you the word resurrection. If you could sum up the story of the Bible and Christianity in one word, it's resurrection. And what does resurrection affirm, and why am I inviting you to cling to it with everything you have? The resurrection of Jesus, like the bodily resurrection of Jesus the Christ from the grave, affirms this world as the physical home God gave us. It announces that new creation is bursting forth all around us right here in our midst. And that Jesus is the first fruit of new creation that is to come. For since death came through one man, resurrection comes through one man. For as in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. Resurrection affirms the good and beautiful aspects of this world that we live in. And it declares that it will not be discarded but that, in fact, it will be experienced to its fullest. Like, imagine the thing you love the most in this world, you know? I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a rainbow trout on a, you know, warm afternoon. Like, now make it bigger. Make it better. Make it more beautiful. Resurrection declares that the things that are beautiful and good in this world will not only last, but be amplified. It, 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 it ushers into our, that when Jesus returns, which Jesus will, he will usher into our physical, flesh and blood, uh, flesh and bone, sweat and blood, earth and dirt world, the fullness of God's kingdom, the fullness of God's rule and reign, and then hand over the keys, like his job will be done. And what will be normal and natural and everyday is the rule and reign of God, the kingdom of God, which means for you and me, We can participate in this physical world in a redeemed way with a lens, with a new vision for it where we don't have to deny food and sex and good things and 
beauty and art and love, we don't have to deny those things or look at them skeptically or try to like dis... No, we can engage them for what they are and, and with a lens towards it. These are good and beautiful and God made them and is redeeming them right now. Revelation 22 says, and they will reign with God forever and ever. When heaven, the new creation, comes down from, this is the picture John paints, comes down, they, we, Adams and Eves, sons of Adams and daughters of Eve, will rule and reign with God in God's good creation. It's not that hard to see this is where the Bible begins with Adam and Eve in a garden, ruling and reigning with God and God's kingdom, God's rule and reign, where hope and justice and peace are normal and natural in our everyday experience. And that the Bible ends with this vision of that coming to earth where we rule and reign and God tabernacles among us, that that is the point of the Christian story. So friends, People ask me, like, Micah, are you saying there's no life after death? No, not at all. I'm just saying that it's not disembodied somewhere off in the clouds with pies and angels. I'm saying it's literal, physical, here, somehow, in this world, remade, reclaimed, restored, made all that God hoped and dreamed for, with you and me, those who are in Christ, like, alive and doing good, like, living Loving, experiencing everything that God made good and true and beautiful. That lasts because it's good, because God made it. And Jesus, his resurrection, inaugurates that reality. Offers the, like, that's the first fruit of what Paul's trying to tell the believers in Thessaloniki. That that's coming. So friends, I think that is good news. Because... Your, your effort of peace in the world, your effort to reconcile a relationship that's broken, your effort to live in such a way that's hopeful and filled with justice and purpose, like, that it's connected to a story bigger than yourself. It's connected to the telos of the universe. And that is not only worth dying for, but it's worth living for today. Right here and right now. Not tomorrow, not someday after you die, but today. So here's your invitation. If you think I'm like anywhere close to what Paul and the scriptures are, are talking about, and I'm not smoking something, then the invitation is, as you leave today, go back out into the world to your actual lives on this actual planet and begin living as the first fruits of new creation. That you might be a foretaste, a glimpse of what is to come. And as you do, relationships heal and become reconciled and love and justice and the seeds of hope and forgiveness are sown into the very fabric of your lives. And we follow the way of Jesus as we do. And we trust, we believe that all the guns, they will be melted. They will be made into plows instead of weapons of death and destruction. That that's what Jesus' resurrection ensures. And friends, I don't know about you, but I, if that's not true, <laughs> like there actually, there actually isn't hope. But if it is, 
<laughs> Let's get busy. Yeah? If you found something better to live for, by all means, knock yourself out. But <laughs> I'm telling you, that one for me, it's a game changer. It's a life changer. So, I'm sweating a lot right now. I don't know what you are doing, but that is all I have to say. I invite you to pray with me, uh, a moment of silence, to ask the Spirit of God to either delete things that I've said that aren't true or amplify things that I've said that are true. So pray with me. God, I ask that this morning, in this next moment of silence, that you would visit us, that you would remind us of who you are, and who we are, and the world that you imagine and envision and, and died to create and resurrected to ensure. Give us a vision for it. Help us to see it so that we might live into it. Holy Spirit, do your work in us now. As we close this morning, we want to invite you to respond uh, in a number of ways. There is uh, communion that is available. It's on my right and left up here at the front. Uh, there's some hand sanitizer at a couple stations. I invite you to grab a little bit of that. And then there's gluten-free bread. I invite you to take the bread, dip it in the cup. There's red wine and white grape juice. Know that as you do, the body of Christ has been broken for you. The blood of Christ has been shed for you. And that body and that blood was resurrected for you. So take and eat. Take your fill. Uh, Mel and Mike will lead us in song. Uh, so as uh, you feel led to respond, invite you to do that this morning. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his face upon lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. I've, I've been off a couple weeks, you know, I lose my step. I give you peace in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The church said together. Amen. Amen. Grace and peace, my friends. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.